Hello and welcome to Behind the Bearcat. This is the podcast where the Northwest Missouri State University Career Services Office chats with Northwest faculty, staff, students, alumni, and friends to hear about their career journeys, how they got to where they are, and how they became Bearcats. I'm Northwest Internship Coordinator Travis Klein. And I am the Director of Career Services here at Northwest, Hannah Christian. And today's guest with us is... Well, I'm Mike Patterson. And I am the manager of technical operations for the Walt Disney Company sound department. All right. Welcome, Mike. It's great to have you today. Thank you. And so I learned from actually your sister, I believe. Uh, She she was recruiting for something else and called me and we just found out that you were a Bearcat and reached out to you. Before you tell us what you do, could you tell us what year you graduated from Northwest? Oh, man, I graduated (laughs) way back when in 1998. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. That's the year I graduated high school. I graduated from Northwest in 2004. Awesome. And what was your degree in? Uh, My degree was in advertising, actually. So um, while I peripherally uh, worked in and around all of the things I am heavily involved in now, it got me working with the uh, mass communications department, right, for for a portion of my degree, um, which was really cool and very exciting to me and launched me into a whole nother world of possibilities. So without having started there, I would not be uh, at all where I am today. So, So tell us a little bit of that journey. We would love to hear that. Well, I Graduated high school and chased a girl to uh, who lived in Kansas City. And my best friend at the time who was from Kansas City, I, I'm from St. Louis originally, I should say. So I'm an East Sider, which is somewhat of a rarity there at Northwest. But there are a few of us every year. Um, somehow, I think we always manage to find each other. But um, anyways, so I chased a girl um, who lived in Kansas City and was uh, friends with my best friend um, who moved to St. Louis from Kansas City and then decided to go to Northwest. And I said, hey, I like that girl. I should go to college there. I don't have a plan. So luckily, grades and everything were good enough to make a last minute uh, decision to go to Northwest. Uh, At that time, the only subject that I was kind of really passionate about in high school was marketing. Um, So I started off as a marketing major and then switched after I lost the girl, by the way, uh, and um, my college career took a turn of its own. I switched majors, which is the reason why it took me five years and not four to get out of Northwest. But I switched. No judgment. I'm a five year super senior. Total, Total high five there. Hey, you know what? I had I couldn't have had a better time during those five years. I even stayed for multiple summers, which is always interesting in that town. And, uh, you know, it, like I said, it, it was a fantastic experience. So I shifted majors from marketing uh, to advertising, which was definitely much more centered around the parts of marketing that I liked. So I was very happy to know that uh, the university offered a, a, a further specialization towards something that I was interested in which was great and a very, you know, like easy process. And all, a lot of my credits already coincided. So it was, it was pretty smooth to transfer over and, um, and then start working with the mass communications team on all of those cool things. You know, people like, um, like Fred Lamer uh, come to mind, of course, who is a legend and uh, the late um, Matt. Um, why am Matt I? Rao. Yeah, Matt Rao. So Rock and Matt Maddie. Rao. 
Matt Rao was a fantastic person and personality and uh, really part of the life's blood of that department when I was there. You know, um, something that I use every single day is something that he turned me on to back in 2001 or 2002 or something like that. This little program was coming out called Pro Tools, which was going to offer a free version of eight track recording that you could download. And literally it was like a Friday afternoon class. And Matt was like, I don't want to cause a disturbance here, but there's this thing coming out over the weekend. That's going to change the way we do everything. Right. And I was like, yeah, right. I was a DJ in Maryville and played at every single bar. We used to host multiple dance party nights, like back, you know, with electronic dance music in the early 2000s at Molly's and at the Outback and at the pub and all of these places. We had a little crew that we went around with. But anyways, I was super interested in recording. Right. And so this free eight track recorder that was coming out, according to Matt, was going to revolutionize the industry. And I was like, yeah, right, whatever. I'll download this thing over the weekend. And I made a mixtape on it, right? And I was actually very impressed with how smooth it was. And the fact that I only needed to capture four of the eight tracks or something like that was like, no, it's totally in my wheelhouse. This is what I need. So without probably that little interaction with Matt, I may not even be where I am today. But Anyways, you know, he's a great personality there. Um, I'm totally not going to remember other names because it's been, you know, so many years. But Fred Lamer's wife, you know, taught me how to use Photoshop, which was something else, you know, as far as the advertising stuff goes, that was amazing. And back then, she, <laughs> I just remember her going, why do you have so many layers? There are like 30 layers here. You know, we were on OS 9 and, uh, you know, Photoshop version 2 probably or something like that. And it would just break, you know, stuff would just break. It wasn't nearly as powerful as everything that we have today, but she was a fantastic person uh, that had real life LA experience, which is where I am now, you know? And so like all of these fantastic personalities that, you know, are part of that department are just a huge inspiration to me. And um, without them, you know, I wouldn't have gone on to the next steps in my career, which involved some further education. Um, at a very specialized school called Full Sail University in Orlando, um, which is where I think they graduate 300 some odd folks every month with a recording arts degree, which is what I got. Most of them want to go on to be bedroom producers or beat makers or hit makers or, you know, uh, big time uh, music engineers. Did you know that's what you wanted to do? Like when you left Northwest, did you know that was where you wanted to go? How did you get turned on to that? So... Like I said, I was a DJ, right? And music was something that I was passionate about in my off-campus life. Um, it, it was partially, you know, um, like I was never a radio DJ there on the campus, right? But I was always around people that were um, because of the advertising degree. You know, I've been down to the record archives there uh, where all the vinyl is uh, is stored. I don't even know if that's still there. It's probably it's not. still there. It's still there. I saw it a couple of years ago. Really parts of it that <laughs> are left. But yeah, at that time, it was rows and rows and rows of vinyl that was there. And you're talking about like really cool white label stuff that only gets sent to the radio station. And you're like, wow, this is probably worth a lot of money, you know, but it's really cool stuff to somebody who's like a DJ like myself. So it was through that musical passion um, that led me to go, you know, I'm home from college now. Um, you have the graduation parties. You have all the get togethers. Friends and family want to help you get your first job. Right. Well, 
all the jobs that I was seeing and everything back in St. Louis, it, it kind of just didn't make sense to me. I didn't want to go put on a suit every day and become like an ad salesperson, you know? And when I was at Northwest, I did some of that. I worked on, I'm sorry, I'm going to forget the name of the little magazine that I, I ran uh, for part of the time there as a student job. Right. And, and we had, we had, I was the advertising manager and we had a, I had a group of salespeople and they would go out and sell ads and go to all of the other towns that were around Maryville and try and recruit people to advertise in the magazine. Well, that was kind of where I was going when I got home. And it just didn't seem like something that I was, I was 100% invested in. And I had a very close friend that I did music production with, right? So we were making um, dance music tracks and other kinds of stuff. And unfortunately, at a very young age, he got diagnosed with cancer and became terminal and passed away. So as those kind of life-changing events can affect people differently, it affected me very differently. And that I said, the experience that I had with Northwest was great. I wouldn't be there. I wouldn't be where I am today without that experience, but I am more passionate now about music production and all of that kind of stuff than I ever have been before. And I'm going to use this person's life as a reason to further that, right? So I ended up going to, to Full Sail in Orlando and specializing in, uh, in recording arts. And then from there, became involved with a, a mixer in my internship. Uh, at the Walt Disney Company, as a matter of fact, which is a very strange uh, uh, way to get back to where I am now uh, as we talk through the rest of the story. But I worked uh, at an internship um, at the Walt Disney Company working on all of the audio that gets made for the parks. So whether you're standing in line and you hear a sound while you're waiting in line or whether you're at a parade uh, or whether you're at a live show. So um, we would work to... Uh, have recordings made out here in Los Angeles. And then we would mix the whole entire live show there in a studio in Orlando. And we would, we would mix all of the vocals and all of these things. And then they get put into hard drives that go into the uh, shows within the park. Right. And these, these shows can be parks in Orlando, parks in California, parks in Japan, parks in China, parks in France, and they can be in multiple different languages, which is something that is also I'm heavily involved in now. So I did an internship there and worked with a mixer who had an LA experience and said, you know, kind of like Fred Lamer's wife told me, uh, LA is a thing and you need to experience it for yourself. It treats everybody differently. Uh, you may like it, you may hate it, but I can't, I can tell you what my experience was, right? But I can't recommend that you go out there or not. I can just say it's a thing and you should probably go do it if it's something you're interested in. So again, followed that, you know, kind of path and, um, and advice and ended up here in LA and have never looked back. Moved to LA with a with a friend that I went to Full Sail with and came to LA to be a record producer, right? I wanted to make music and engineer music and work on really great stuff that I was passionate about all the time, right? And you get out here and I'm like, well, I got to get a job. Where's the first place I know I can get a job? Well, I think sales is something I'm, used, I'm very familiar with, right? Going back to my advertising roots and marketing stuff. So I go to Guitar Center. I get a paying <laughs> job. Like literally they called me on the way in the car on the way home. You know, we're like, can you come back for an interview? Okay, yes. So get that job. 
Now, I also had um, another internship lined up when I came out here at a recording studio called Scream Studios, which is now closed. But they mixed hits like Here Come the Men in Black for uh, Will Smith. They mixed uh, Mbop, which, you know, uh, is Hanson. Hanson, yeah. <laughs> so if you remember that song. And they were primarily like a mix facility, right? So there was a tracking room there. And, but primarily it was, it was all mixing. And we had a massive, you know, uh, 72 channel uh, SSL 9000J uh, mixing console. And, it, you know, these kind of rooms out here in LA are basically uh, like in every other building. <laughs> it seems like these multi-million dollar recording consoles, you know. So I had that lined up and I had the Guitar Center job and I would work from, I would go to work at Guitar Center at 7.30, be there for my opening shift, get out of there around four or five, go grab dinner and head over to the studio. And I would work probably till one, two in the morning depending on what happened, you know, depending on what project we were working on. And that was probably four days a week. Got to know the engineer there, um, an engineer by the name of Mark Endert, who was a, he's a Sony staffer guy. And the studio was owned by Randy Alpert, who is Herb Alpert's nephew. Herb Alpert gave him the money to build the studio by selling a sample to the notorious B.I.G., like literally one sample he sells for use in a major hip hop song buys you, you know, a recording studio. So Randy was given this recording studio and managed it. And it was a great place to work. Very cool people. But we started kind of like not working on some of the pop stuff. And there was a lot of requests to work until 4 a.m. And, you know, the clientele kind of got a little bit like out of what was Randy's comfort zone for managing. So that opportunity uh, ended up closing. Mark bought the studio, bought all the equipment and moved it off to a place in Florida and offered both of the assistants, uh, myself and another guy, Alex at the time, the opportunity to go with him to Florida. And I said, Mark, if we go with you to Florida, it's just gonna be like waiting for you to die so that we could take over for your clients, you know? So um, I'm just gonna stay here. So. Uh, the Guitar Center thing still panned out. Eventually, they wanted to make me a manager. Took that opportunity, as I never usually turn down anything at a, at a job. They basically started, after becoming a department manager, they wanted to make me an assistant store manager. And, oh, we're, here's the path. You are going, you know, we will make it so that you could, you know, run your own store in Muskegon or something like that, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I don't really, you know, like uh, music, right? That's my reason for getting into this stuff, not store management at Guitar Center. Refocus, get another job at another recording studio. That one also closed and didn't pan out. That was called the Document Room Studios in Malibu, which was a great little like small room where I got to work with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and like some other really cool people that live in Malibu and do small projects, right? And then that room unfortunately closed and it just became like more and more obvious to me that basically the way the music industry works as far as mixers go, like the top 3% of the guys kind of have a revolving client list that keeps coming to them. And so they make all the bucks. And everybody else is like, oh, it's Thursday night. I got to go down to Bar X in Hollywood to try and watch a live band so that I can talk them into doing some recording, you know, and it's like, well, I don't want to do that either. That doesn't sound like too much fun to me. In my job at Guitar Center, somebody's grandpa died and they thought I would be a good ask to run a voiceover recording job for them for a week while they were going back east. Okay, sure. Why not? 
uh, I can do recordings. That's easy. Oh, and by the way, it pays about five times what you make here at Guitar Center. <laughs> so take vacation at Guitar Center, go to this little VO recording gig. Turns out it's for a major video game company that at the time was called Vivendi Universal. Uh, Vivendi Universal was the parent company of Blizzard Entertainment, which makes, you know, World of Warcraft and Diablo and all these other giant uh, MM. What do they call those again? It's been years now. Sorry, but massively multiplayer online games or something like that. And then they got bought by Activision, where they merged with Activision, makers of, you know, Tony Hawk and Call of Duty and all of these big games. And we were like, oh, wow, this is going to be so cool. Like, we're going to get swallowed up by this other game company that makes a lot of cool console stuff. Wah, wah. No. Activision comes over and says, we're no, we're, we aren't in the business of owning and operating post-production uh, or recording facilities. We farm all of that stuff out. And so they third-party everything. Had no intentions of keeping the building or any of the staff. We were all let go um, after about, I was there for probably five years, four or five years. And you know that's where I cut my teeth. That's where I recorded a ton, I mean, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lines of dialogue, you know, Scarface, the world is yours, this like massive open world game that was kind of, it was Scarface uh, dressed on, um, what's the name of the other, like uh, very violent game where you, you can like carjack stuff. and Grand Theft know. Auto? Grand Theft Auto. Thank you very much, Travis. It's kind of like Grand Theft Auto, but like dressed with Scarface stuff. And so there, are, there, were, there were literally over 250,000 lines of dialogue in that game. And I recorded probably 90% of them. You know, we would work with everybody from uh, Joe Blow voiceover actor who is just here to yell all day um, so that we can have death sounds to, you know, um, people from the Scarface movie. Right. And those kind of things. You know, I got to work with some really cool talent there. And, you know, it was a, it was an exciting experience. I also cut my teeth on mixing there. I got to mix promos and cinematics for in-game stuff and a lot of different marketing materials. Right. And so, you know, having that advertising background is something that has always served me well, because number one, a lot of it is business etiquette and how to write emails and how to behave and, you know, how to, uh, you know, how to address people and, you know, all of that kind of stuff that you, that you don't really realize when you're learning it at the time, but pays off tenfold, you know, once you get out into the real world and, um, and start interacting with other professionals. So what was your mindset? So this is an interesting question for me. So, so like they've downsized, they've, they've, you know, offloaded the, the audio or the post-production. What was your mindset at that point about like having to go find another job? Very good question. I was extremely depressed again to like, okay, here we go. Now I got to go start this whole search, search over. This has been an amazing experience, but what do I do? Well, we had a super smart operations manager that was in charge of the post-production group. When the merger was first announced, we had some inklings, but didn't know for sure what it was going to be. We, we were kind of like, okay, it's either they're going to eliminate us and we'll be all be laid off. Or we'll be responsible for a ton more work. If it's, we need a ton more work, I should probably figure out another place to do that because we're not going to be able to handle it all. So very intelligently, she arranged meetings at all kinds of other post-production facilities around the area. And we got to meet all kinds of different other job opportunities. So when the news finally did come down, I already had irons in the fire at several other places, including the internal opportunities that they 
gave me right as the um, as the deal was closing, and they said, "Yeah, you're going to be laid off, but we own all of these other places that have sound experts. We will get you in touch with them." Those didn't pan out. What did pan out is a little opportunity for a small post production facility called Blue Room Post. They have facilities on the rally lots here in Los Angeles. So everybody's heard of the Walt Disney Studios lot, the Fox lot, the you know Sony Pictures, Paramount, uh, Warner Brothers, of course, these big you know studio lots. Well, there are these other um, couple of small places where. Um, movies and TV shows get made. And one of them is called, uh, or I'm pretty sure it's the same, but it was called at the time Rally Studios, um, owned by a, a separate, you know, uh, independent company, not affiliated that I know of with, with any of the major studios, but offering all of the same type of services, right? They offer massive warehouse style stages where you can go shoot movies and TV. Um, there's exteriors, you know, that are available. And then there's post-production facilities that are available. Well, one thing they didn't have on either of these lots, one is in Hollywood right across the street from the Paramount lot. And the other one is in Manhattan Beach. And there's a little company at that time, like 2005, 2005 no, this would have been like 2000, probably 2009-ish when I first started talking to them, 2008. And there was a little company that was up and coming at the time, the Manhattan uh, beach lot called Marvel, right? So Marvel was starting to make motion pictures about superheroes and all of that stuff, right? So both of the company, Blue Room Post, had small footprints on both lots, but like we want to increase our business. And we've noticed one of the areas that they're lagging is they don't have ADR facilities, which is ADR for those of you that are not uh, familiar with post-production. It's automated dialogue replacement, right? Or automated dialogue recording. So what we do is when they're shooting on a set, right? And there's a plane that flies over and it's super loud, of course, for all the microphones that are there capturing the actor's dialogues. Well, we can't use that in our final product. So we have to replace it. So the actors come into a controlled environment, a recording studio, and we re-record those lines of dialogue to get them to match as closely to uh, what was recorded the day of the shoot. Um, we also use ADR to change plot lines, you know, as rewrites happen on movies and TV shows. Oh, all of a sudden, you know, the scene is playing out with the two actors right in front of you. All of a sudden, the shot shifts to the back of somebody's head, but they continue talking, right? Well, this is commonly a very good place to cheat with ADR and change what was originally written to something that has been updated. You know, we could be tweaking uh, accents. We could be tweaking pronunciations of words. Uh, we could be changing the context or the plot line, like I said. But either way, you know, it's it's basically it's a recording to replace something that's that's damaged in the original or something that needs to be changed in the original. So the rally lots didn't have any facilities like that. Um, so we, uh, under my instruction, and I guess let's say under my instruction and leadership, we built two ADR recording places and also use them as a multi-purpose facility where we could mix in one or multiple of the rooms that we ended up building. So design, right? Sound implementation, sound reinforcement, all of these things, you know, become stuff that like I, I was always super familiar with and had a good knowledge of, but like 
I've never built a recording studio before, right? They're not asking me to do that either. They're asking me to lead the project and, you know, work with uh, acousticians and other professionals that are going to come in and handle all the construction and handle tuning of the rooms and, you know, control the sound space. You know, what I get to do is I get to pick out the gear, right? Hello, Guitar Center. What did I do there as the recording department manager? I sold and find, you know, and populated very large studios with tons of gear all day long. That is right in my wheelhouse. I can take on that part of the project and be a huge savings to the company because they don't have to hire somebody to, to do that. You know, I can do that. Plus, through my experience, I can also work in the room after it's done through there, right? To, to, to basically, you know, wrap that long story up. We got to work on all kinds of cool projects. Iron Man 2, right, uh, was probably the highlight. So I worked with Robert Downey Jr. and Don Cheadle, you know, very cool people and actors, right? So it was a great opportunity. But through there, I, I got to meet another person who had a, when I saw his resume and realized we were going to be working together, I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is a Hollywood vet and been working in this industry for a really long time, right? Super scared meeting him for the first time going into these conversations about how to build these recording rooms and all of this kind of stuff. Turns out one of the nicest guys in the world, a guy named Dickon Berglund, who, you know, was an immigrant here from Sweden, got into post-production. He was actually a rock star in Sweden, um, but got into post-production here in the States and super nice and just a lovely person to work with. Ended up getting me a job at another you know, little company called 20th Century Fox doing other sound stuff, right? Because I had done, you know, he trusted me and we did good work together on this Blue Room project and all this kind of stuff. And so got in at 20th, kind of like on a freelance basis, which is how it works um, sometimes here uh, within the studio environment, because these are all like union type of jobs, uh, which is different. So like I work for the Walt Disney Company, but I'm also required to be a union member here so that I can actually touch audio um, or do stuff with the product, right? So, you know, got, got in at Fox um, on a daily hire, like I said, temp type of thing. Kept needing me to come back. It would come and it would go and I would do ADR and I was doing other jobs. I was sound supervising on my own. You know, I worked on a movie with people from Fox, right? I, I, I did all kinds of indie stuff, a movie called The Christmas Bunny, which was, um, you know, has made its rounds and usually comes out, uh, you know, well, it'll probably be back around here in a couple months on some of the streaming services somewhere. But just kind of continued to work in sound and figure out like, okay, I've transitioned from wanting to work in the recording and music industry to working in video games to then kind of getting more familiar with movies and TV and now being fully immersed in TV and features on the Fox lot and plotted along for six, seven years there doing the work of the department um, that we were, you know, that I was working for, which is, um, at that time was mastering primarily. So essentially that department would handle every single soundtrack for every movie and every television show that 20th Century Fox made. And if you can imagine, that would sometimes be upwards of 44 television shows all running anywhere between 12 and 22 episodes a season, plus a theatrical film slate of about 15 to 30 movies per year. 
right? Because we would service all of these other banners, whether it was Searchlight or FX or FXX or, you know, uh, Big Fox, right? Broadcast Fox. Like we were working on everything uh, for all of those shows, including all of the foreign languages for all of those shows. So if you can imagine on a movie like the one that just came out, Free Guy, right? We've been working on Free Guy for quite a long time. I don't think it's any secret that it sat on the shelf for a little bit while 20th century transitioned to the Walt Disney Company. But that movie has 25 or more languages on it. Each one of those is a different soundtrack that has to be handled and made so that when it goes out into the world, it sounds similar. So if you get to, you know, uh, switching experiences on your television and somebody speaks is a Spanish speaker, you know, and they want to flip over to the Latin Spanish soundtrack. You don't have this jarring, you know, kind of jolt of like, why do these two things sound so differently? So that was a huge part of what we did there on, on the Fox side. And we worked on all of that content and, you know, it wasn't always creating the content from scratch or what we call raw units. A lot of it was working with content that was produced and made all, all over different parts of the world. It might've come from the building next door. If we're talking about the big theatrical mix on a movie like Free Guy, but it could have also come from an independent post-production facility in Poland. Like it comes from all over the place. So it was a really good experience in like how post-production works on a global scale for sound, right? Something that like somebody who's a dialogue editor on a television show, they just would have no idea. But it's a very small part of the industry, this mastering part. And it's important, right? Because like I said, excuse me, we're ensuring that, that the content sounds the same and that it upholds, you know, through all of the processes that we have to go through including like data compression and encoding, which is actually what the end user ends up listening to is a decoded version of that encoded data compressed file. We're making sure that the quality of it is upheld to the best it can all the way through that process. So it gave me a really great opportunity to learn from the beginning, which I already knew like what, where it starts all the way to the very end to like what the end user experiences on their home on a Blu-ray disc or a DVD or now on a streaming service. So yeah, I work for the largest entertainment company in the world, which is amazing. I've had a long journey to get here. Um, as you can imagine, uh, with all mergers, job loss, right? Again, something else that I had to go through experiencing. At this time, I was already a manager uh, on the Fox side. You know, here we are being bought by the Walt Disney Company. I mean, it's been a, it's been a really long journey to get where we are today which is fully involved in the Walt Disney company. But, you know, we went from the company is for sale. Oh no, what does that mean? Oh, it looks like Comcast wants to buy us. That's weird. They're like a cable company, right? And okay, all right. Well then, you know, the Walt Disney company wants to buy us. Hmm, that's interesting. They're like a family-based company, right? Weird. All the way up to the deal closes and yeah, you're now a Disney employee, right? So there were layoffs and other kinds of things that happened, restructuring, you know, people from my department got moved other places as well as being laid off within the company or with or outside of the company. So that brings us to almost current day, right? Because all of this, all of this kind of happened in March of last year, which I don't know if you guys remember uh, what might have also happened around March of last year, but yeah, there was this thing called a global pandemonium and COVID. So <laughs> the fact that I am where I am now, I'm, I'm super lucky. I'm super grateful. 
I get to not only do everything that I was doing before, plus more for an even bigger company. You know, nowadays my day-to-day is everything from developing workflows for the team, like the one I mentioned on the mastering side, to creating theatrical elements on the other side that are going to be then be passed from one team to another. So we're going to create the element on one team, and then we're going to pass that over for QC and packaging to another team. And I'm going to basically be able to document and help provide for workflow management across the entire process of the product, which is amazing to be able to do all of those things. I also get to contribute as a as an expert for a lot of the specs and stuff that get written that everybody that produces content for the Walt Disney Company needs to adhere to, right? And so we can standardize deliveries for implementation or for input into inventory systems, right? So everybody knows the vault, right? The famous Disney vault. Well, as you can imagine, it has a very complex and comprehensive uh, data entry and uh, file management system. So things have to be named, for instance, a very specific way when they go into it. And metadata and all of these other kind of things are attached to it. So I get to participate in all of that kind of stuff, which is, I'm in awe of my journey. Um, And encapsulating it for you in, I guess, 40 minutes now or so, it has been a whirlwind. It has not been perfect, but it's a very, you know, it's been in a very exciting ride. And I think part of, you know, um, what has gotten me here is being open and optimistic to all opportunities. And that's something that I learned at Northwest because I didn't fit in at Northwest, to be totally honest with you, right? Uh, Like I said, I was an East Sider, number one, but, you know, I, I wasn't. I don't know. I was the guy with baggy pants and tie dyes, you know, walking around and, you know, it was like, huh, I ride a skateboard across campus. Nobody else rides a skateboard, you know, like, and then you see somebody else who does and you're like, whoa. And it's like instant friendship, right? Hearing different music ringing out through Hudson Hall when I was there as a freshman, I never turned down any of those opportunities, right? So hearing a a song that I recognized from a band that I liked or whatever, I was the type of person that I was walking down the hall and looking inside that person's door and being like, hey, how are you? I like that song. Those kind of opportunities were everywhere for me at Northwest as well. I wasn't noticing that I was paying attention to them. And now I notice every single one that's made available to me almost. And it becomes important. And whether that's so-and-so from Netflix is interested in talking to you about coming over for a job or, you know... Today, we're going to work with the Skywalker team, right? Which is an extremely illustrious sound facility that we get to, you know, that we are lucky enough to be partners with. Just, it's just amazing. And when I think back to the experience I had at Northwest, it more and more, I think about how I developed and how I grew up there. It made me what I am today and provided me the right start to the path that I'm on, which I still don't know where it's going to go. I really don't. (laughs) I continue to be open to all possibilities. I'm just excited for the future. You know, through all of those rough times, like I mentioned, in this process of transitioning from 20th Century Fox to the Walt Disney Company, there were many people taking jobs elsewhere. There were many people losing their jobs. But something inside of me just always said, stay the course. Let's see how things pan out here. Because why would I go look for a job at another entertainment company when it's possible I could be working for the best and biggest right here? 
And this company has its moments and it has its flaws for sure. But I'm the type of person that hopes that I can be a catalyst to help bring those up to date or bring it into what's next. It's that type of thing that I think started when I was at Northwest as far as like an inspirational type of thing, just being open to that, right? And open to that creativity and possibility for change that really holds on to me to this day. Like I said, have probably many times now, I'm extremely lucky to be where I am. It's without a doubt that was the experience and the transitions and everything that I went through at Northwest that, that really got me here. That is an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that with us. I want to be mindful of your time. I have one kind of question that I have never asked before, but maybe you're a student who feels like they want to go out to the coast, go to LA. They want to go to New York, but they're here in Maryville. Mm-hmm. And I, I see a lot of these students and sometimes they're afraid to like go somewhere that they don't know. Um, I guess what piece of advice or encouragement would you give to someone who's maybe on the fence about trying something in a bigger space, going to a bigger space? This is a rural area and they're afraid to go maybe to the New Yorks, to the LAs. What advice would you give to someone who is interested in that? I completely understand. And like I said, I, I was in a very similar boat. So I think what you have to do is you have to recognize what the fear is, right? Try to find the root cause of it encapsulate that and put it off to the side and then say, what's exciting about this opportunity, right? And so I always go back to like, my mother always told me this, make a list, pros and cons, right? So encapsulate all of those fears and put them away so that you can say, when my mind is open, what, what are the positives, right? What, what is exciting about this opportunity that would be anywhere? That would be New York, LA, who knows, Argentina, you know, some, something else, right? That's, that's completely out of my comfort zone. And then write that pros and cons list and really say fear and anxiety is one item on the con side, not this list of things that you're making, you know, that kind of get tucked under that but it really, it's it's fear of the unknown, right? So that's probably uh, something worth putting at the top of the cons list. Absolutely. But something that immediately crosses that out for me is if you flip it on its head and go the possibilities of the unknown. And so to me, that cancels out fear every time. So you need to just remain, I think, optimistic. And after you've made the list, I would say if the opportunity is right for you, your pros column is definitely going to outweigh your cons column and go for it. I I really don't know. I mean, you can tiptoe into it as much as you want. You can take a trip to LA and you can do this or do that. But for me, it was that engineer. You know, it was it was Dan Fontana who owns an awesome studio called TIFI Studios. Uh, Shout out, Dan. But it was that engineer, right, that I was working with at the Walt Disney Company at my internship that said, I can tell you, I had a horrible experience in LA, but that shouldn't stop you from going and you need to go out and explore it for yourself. I can tell it's in your personality. And so for me, you know, tiptoeing into it was just wasn't going to work. I knew that from other things I had done in the past, like testing something out. I I really just wasn't going to jump into the opportunity unless I dove fully into the deep end and did the things like I needed to do. Like I have to get a job. I don't have a job. Like I got the first couple of months rent paid for and I have a place to go. But after that, if I don't make it, it's, hey, mom, 
hey dad sorry this isn't panning out i guess i'm driving back and nobody wants to go through that but you know i, I think the fact that i i did have that was a huge advantage to me as a fallback i didn't want to do that but i did have it you know so that is probably an underlying advantage that's worth considering but either way it wasn't something i thought about at the time I just went for it, you know, and, and I just, I, I had to do that because I had to have a catalyst that caused me to need to survive, to be quite honest. If I didn't come here and get a job right away, there wasn't going to be anything after the three months. So I really just, I made it work and I made it work through hard work and it was seek out all of these additional opportunities. And yeah, it sucked waking up at 7am and work until 2am or sometimes 4am and then having to get up at 7am the next day and go deal with customers at guitar center. Like that's not a lot of fun, you know, or dealing with cranky artists, you know, at 2 AM who are, you're, you're just not communicating well with one another. And there's a lot of money on the line. This studio is not cheap on an hourly rate. And you know what, like that could be for a tough night, but yet you persevere even though I still, like I said, I don't have the big goal in mind. I don't like, it's not my, it's not my dream to be a VP of sound or something else at the Walt Disney company. I really pride myself on doing the best I can do every day at my job and being a great communicator, a great collaborator and being somebody that other people want to work with. And that has never served me wrong. I would prioritize being on a great team over working for any certain company. You know, like I said, there was something here. Part of it was the people, right? Which I didn't mention. Part of it was the people I'm working with here, but part of it is the allure of the company. But for me, it's, it's more about relationships and working with the right people that suit my personality. I don't think you can ever go wrong there, but without just taking that first step, off into the unknown, if it will, which is cliche and been said a thousand times. There's something there because it forces you to do what you need to do to survive. And whether that's be very active on your job search or be always open to any opportunity that might come up, it worked for me. And I, I think it, it's probably a good way to go for others as well. Do you have anything else, Travis? I had several questions along the way that you covered naturally. So no, I think you, you <laughs> I told the say, story yeah, you, beautifully. You so. segued very nicely to, to put it all together. Oh, awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I hope, uh, I hope you guys have what you need. All right. Well, Mike, well, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you guys. This was really cool. And that will do it for another episode of Behind the Bearcat. And we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>